Well, last week, if you hear, we had a guest preacher with us from Foothill Church, Lucas Parks, and he did an excellent job teaching us what Jesus said about children both in how God sees children, but also how his children see him. We learn that he is gracious and that he is loving towards his children because we're vulnerable and we're in great need and we're in really truly desperate need of him. We cannot take care of ourselves like children. But also that we have to see ourselves rightly as his children because none of us are spiritual adults. We never graduate beyond our neediness for our savior. We always need his redemption, grace, and provision in our lives. Rightly placed faith, as he said, is childlike. It's not childish, but it is childlike because we come to the Lord humbly in the reality of our desperation for him. Well, this week, we're gonna see a contrast from from children who are in desperate need to a wealthy young man who, let's just say, doesn't exactly see his need for God in the same way. In our passage this morning, we're gonna see what Jesus has to say about the economics of his kingdom how our worldly distractions get in the way, and how to rightly order our lives as we follow him. So we see in the opening, a man comes to meet Jesus. And there's kind of some interesting things to take note of here. First, I would say, is his, his approach. He runs up to Jesus. He kneels before him, asking his question. And we kind of get this picture of this young, kind of overeager, earnest person who's looking for answers. And he calls Jesus good teacher. And he's come to learn from him, probably because he's heard of him that he's a wise man. He's a wise teacher. But the question he asks is what is most notable. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy runs up and gets on one knee and goes straight for the gusto. It kind of, I know, I think it's kind of ridiculous. It just seems absurd. He doesn't introduce himself. He just runs up to him and goes straight for what he's looking for. He's on a mission. He's looking for something very specific. So how does Jesus respond? One thing that is always important to know and is always consistent with Jesus as he talks to other people is his focus and his priorities. He always goes to the heart. Many people are coming to Jesus looking for specific answers to questions. They have an agenda, but Jesus always goes deeper. He always goes to issues of the heart. So Jesus asks this young man why he calls him good, because only God is good. He's he's setting up the answer to his question with that baseline reality that no one is good except for God. And he emphasizes this by recalling the commandments in the scriptures to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, lie, cheat, and also the command to honor your father and mother. And unsurprisingly, this overeager young guy just basically says, oh yeah, I've done all of that since my youth. I, don't, I haven't broken any of those things. And you're like, give me a break. Like this guy thinks he's, he's so awesome and there's no way. But we got to ask the question here, why? What's going on in this guy's heart? Well, he's making religious checklists and he's trying to check off the boxes that he's doing all the things that he's supposed to do. So he wants to know what else is there? I've done the religious checklist, so what's, what else is needed for eternal life? The key here is he sees Jesus as a teacher, not as God, and then he sees religion as the solution. Let's look at what happens next in verses 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." So what's striking in Jesus' response here isn't just his words, it's his heart, it's his approach. And that really hit me when I read this, that Mark tells us that before anything, Jesus loved this man. 
And I think that hit me because I'm kind of annoyed by this guy. Like he's just, he's that overeager kind of doing too much kind of guy that just bother, that bothers us a lot when we interact with people like that. He thinks that he's perfect. He thinks he hasn't broken any of the commandments since he was a kid. He thinks he has it all together. But Jesus does not respond to him in annoyance or impatience or frustration. We see his response is love. That's the heart our God has towards this young man before he says anything. We have to understand that because his tone, his intentions, and the why behind what Jesus says, it's all undergirded by that reality that he loves this man. So he tells him, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it away and follow me instead. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. This guy is absolutely devastated at this. And it says he's disheartened by the answer. He leaves in sorrow because God's word tells us he had great many possessions. The word for disheartened here in the Greek means to be shocked, appalled, and gloomy. Why? Because this man was looking for what to add to his life for salvation. It had never occurred to him that sacrifice was required, that surrender was required to follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus goes straight for his heart because he knows him, he loves him, and he knows that there's something that he values more than God that's getting in the way, his stuff, his money, and his earthly treasures. Now, when I was reading about this young man, again, being annoyed with him, then I had to be honest with myself and think about my own story. See, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so the spotlight was on me and my family all the time. And I pretty much learned quickly I had to be a good kid because if I did anything, everybody would find out and everybody was watching. So I learned to be the kid that gets good grades, that does the right things, that doesn't get in trouble, that looks like the model all the time. And you know what that did? It made me prone to self-righteousness. I thought I was better than other people. And ultimately, I looked at my faith as measured by my ability to be a good person. I started to believe that my good deeds meant that I was actually good. But God loved me enough to not let me stay there. He exposed my sinfulness. He showed me how broken I really was and how much I desperately needed him and that I couldn't manage or overcome my sin on my own. It was not possible because I was not good. That illusion of being a good person was shattered and it was good for me. That was God's will for my life. I needed a savior to save me from myself. I didn't need to put on things to fix myself and to earn his favor. Now, I see a lot of myself in this young man just thinking of my own journey and my own history with Jesus. And I think his, his kind of thinking here is, I've worked really hard. I've tried my best to be a good person. So what else do I need to earn God's favor? And just like in my youth, really this man is looking for religion, not redemption. He didn't understand that a sacrifice was required for salvation, not good deeds, because he was sinful. He was imperfect, that he had stains that he couldn't clean. And ultimately, Jesus would fulfill that need for sacrifice. But Jesus also in this moment is teaching him a lesson that following him requires our sacrifice as well. You see, you can't follow Jesus and hold on to other things. We have to surrender it all to him. And I think this is particularly hard for us because of the day and age that we live in. We live in what could be called an a la carte culture. We kind of piece together the things in our lives that we want, the things that we believe. People will say, you know, I'll take a little bit of the kindness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, but, you know, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want what he has to say about sexuality or what he has to say about sin. I'm going to take the world's view of sexuality. People say things like, I like the justice and I like the wrath of God as long as that's for bad people that I don't like, that I disagree with. But for me, I want to be left alone. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I want church on Sunday. 
but the rest of the week, that's mine. I get to do what I want with that. I'll be there Sunday morning, but don't tell me how I should be spending my time or my money. We like to have everything our way, and we want to piece everything together and customize the life that we have, the beliefs that we have, and the way we do everything in our lives. But Jesus tells us, just like this young man, you can't have it all. You can't tightly hold on to your stuff, your ideologies, or your sin. Jesus is not an add-on that goes in your cart. He takes over everything. He replaces the whole cart, which means that we don't get to take the parts of Jesus and the parts of his word that we like and reject the rest. Remember earlier in Mark, when Jesus first called his disciples, what did they have to do? He asked them to leave their families, their jobs. He asked them to leave everything behind in order to follow him. And just like the disciples, following Jesus means a willingness to sacrifice and to surrender to get him. It means that the wisdom of his word and the example of his life become the very foundation for all we think, all we speak, and all we do. Being a part of his kingdom means completely surrendering to his rule and his reign over our very lives. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Following Jesus requires radical surrender. Look with me back in the text. We're going to start at verse 23. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So we get to see a little bit of reflection on what just happened between Jesus and this young man. Jesus pivots from speaking truth into this young man's life to speaking to his disciples and teaching them further on what's going on here. And he tells them that it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, to understand that, I think we have to answer a couple questions here. The first is, what does it mean to be wealthy? You know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about wealth inequality in America. You know, we got guys like Jeff Bezos basically not paying taxes that frustrate everybody, um, yet being the wealthiest of the wealthy. And if anyone remembers, I remember at least when I was in college, that we are the 99% movement that took place in this big conversation about wealth inequality. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. This isn't about that. But I think we need to broaden our perspective a little bit. And so I'm going to hit you with some, some statistics about income on a worldwide scale. If you make over $30,000 a year, do you know what percentage you are in the U.S.? Or in, in, not in the U.S., in the world, as far as wealth? The top 5%. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the entire world's wealth. I mean, that's crazy. The top 1%. This isn't about income inequality in the U.S., but this is a broader perspective on where we are, what we have, what God has provided for us. We often do not recognize where we are in the world. And certainly there's conversation to be had on these topics. But I think the point here is that we can't just point to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates and say, that's what rich, that's what rich is. And we're average or we're poor. Because the reality is most of us are at the tippy top of the world's wealth. So when we read this, this story here and we see this wealthy young man, we can't project that that's Mark Zuckerberg coming up or Elon Musk because that's not who this young man is. This young man is us. So the second question here we need to ask is, does Jesus hate money? Are we supposed to just be poor and live in poverty? And the answer here is unequivocally no. That is not what Jesus is saying. 
both the prosperity gospel, which teaches that we should, in following Jesus, we're gonna have material wealth and possessions and ease on this planet is evil, it's wrong, it's unbiblical. But equally so, the poverty gospel, which says that Christians should have nothing, be destitute and live in abject poverty to follow Jesus is also dangerous and just untrue. It's not biblical. James Edwards says this, Jesus does not teach or uphold poverty as an ideal, but he does, as here, regard the awareness of need that results from poverty as a blessing. The greatest enemies to faith and obedience are self-satisfaction and pride, and nothing removes those bulwarks more effectively than poverty. See, the issue Jesus is addressing here is how the lack of felt neediness completely clouds our ability to understand our true neediness before God, and it gets in the way of our ability to walk in faith. The more we pursue and we are able to attain self-satisfaction, the harder it is to obey faithfully. And the disciples here were amazed at this, what Jesus told them, how difficult it was for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because human beings are prone towards self-sufficiency and independence. David Garland puts it this way, Jesus' encounter with this rich man in Mark serves to illustrate how difficult it is for the rich, or anyone for that matter, to do this. Few are willing to risk divesting themselves of whatever provides them security in this life to enter a new quality of life under God's rule. And this plays out in many different ways, but one of the main ways is that we find our identity, our security, our hope, and our self-worth in our income and in our stuff. We avoid anything that makes us uncomfortable or that makes us feel needy. We have very little concept of delayed gratification. Our needs are often met instantly in this world, whether it's something you want to watch, something you want to read, something you want to buy, or something you want to do. With the click of the button, you can get same-day delivery on like 100,000 different things on Amazon. We can buy things with digital credit card wallets. Not, I mean, you don't even need a piece of plastic anymore. You don't even need anything. And you don't even have to have money. You can just buy it on credit and get whatever you want. See, the situation, though, back then, and what this man is going through, it's, it's not that different than we are today, which is important for us to understand. He still doesn't recognize his neediness. He thinks that he needs to add something to his life. And Jesus is not concerned with what income bracket you're in. He's concerned with the attitude and the posture of your heart and what you do with those things. He's concerned about where you place your hope and where you place your identity. So whether you think you're rich or not, ultimately we are all like this rich young man. We often pursue our lives trying to get all of our ducks in a row to build up our lives with the pursuit of stability, security, and avoiding risk. We avoid discomfort again, and we often just run to whatever is easy, quick satisfaction in our lives. Verse 25, Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why does he say this? Well, essentially, Jesus just compared the largest Palestinian animal that people would be familiar with with the smallest opening in, the, in that world in that day and age that people would be familiar with. And so he's doing this to express the absurd impossibility of this task. In other words, maybe today we'd say it's easier for a blue whale to go through a cellular membrane, which was for you, by the way. I got some scientists in the room that would appreciate that. But yeah, it's, it's easier for a blue whale to go through the tiniest opening we can think of than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And this seems bleak. This literally, it sounds impossible, and it is. And the disciples ask, how is it possible then? How, how in the world would anyone be saved if this is true? 
If following Jesus means forsaking all we have, giving up everything, and surrendering our sense of identity, stability, and security, that's a big task. How is anyone supposed to do that? How in the world can anyone be saved? See, Jesus' intention here was for the disciples, as well as for us today, to feel the weight of our sinfulness and the untraversable chasm between us and God. We need to feel the impossibility and the weightiness of our situation because it's not just our outright, rebellious, obvious to other people's sins, whether sexual, angry, prideful, selfish, dishonest, or jealous in nature that get in the way. It's also just our false worship. It's where we place our hope, our meaning, our happiness, and where we look for ultimate stability and security in life. Those are the things that disqualify us just like any other sin from deserving salvation on our own merits. Even those who follow all the rules are disqualified because in their hearts, they think that they're doing it, that they're good enough, which is pride. No one is good except for God. So this is where Jesus brings us hope in this place of hopelessness, the weight of the impossibility of this task. In verse 27, he says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Man, that's probably a verse you've heard many times before, but also probably one of the most misinterpreted and misused verses that's taken out of context. Because when Jesus said this, he's bringing real hope. He's not talking about how the underdog can come back in the fourth quarter because all things are possible with God. This is real hope. Hope for a person with multiple life sentences and millions of dollars in fines that has no hope of getting out of it because of their crimes. Hope when there truly is no way out and there is nothing you can do. Jesus came to us in that place, the place where we deserve death for our sin, where there is nothing we can do, and he brought hope. He made a way. Earlier in the passage, this young man asks how to inherit eternal life. See, though he came to Jesus looking for religion, it's kind of funny. He sort of accidentally got one thing right because eternal life isn't something that we earn. It's something that we are given. It's something we inherit. Our God and Father freely gives to his children who he loves this gift, which is why in John 14, 6, you look on the screen and see, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The answer to the man's question simply is Jesus. That is what is required for eternal life. That is how we inherit it. It's through him. There is simply no other way. There's nothing you can do. There's no hope on your own. Which brings us to our second point this morning. Salvation is impossible without Jesus. All right, turn to verse 28 in the passage. It says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and we followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So initially Jesus tells this young man to sell everything he has, to give all that money away and then to follow him. And then he tells his disciples that it's those who leave behind family and property for the gospel and then endure suffering and persecution for his sake that will be blessed. Jesus nullifies both the poverty false gospel and the prosperity false gospel all in one fell swoop here. And instead he encourages endurance and suffering with the promise that those who give up much for him and for his gospel, 
he will take care of them both now, but ultimately with eternal life. Now, God's word does speak innumerably and clearly throughout all scripture about how he loves us and comforts us in our general suffering in life that he's a refuge for us and that he cares deeply for us. But it's important to note what Jesus is saying here and not just loop that in because he's talking about something specific. He's saying that general suffering and hardship in life, those are one thing. But here he speaks about the kinds of sacrifices that people make for him and for the gospel. And that blessing for those who have left earthly attachments for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus, that they will be rewarded and they will be taken care of. He's calling his followers to willingly give up allegiances to the most important and the most essential things in our lives, home, family, and career or work. This is what results in blessing, both on earth and in eternity. But he also says with that blessing comes persecution. Jesus is always honest with his disciples and with us that hardship is to be expected for those who follow him and follow him faithfully. Though he will provide for us, and he does, Life on earth is not without difficulty for those who follow Jesus Christ. This comes, the key phrase comes in here in understanding how God's kingdom economy works. He summarizes all of it in verse 31 and says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the upside down kingdom of God. Jesus is reorienting their minds and ours and breaking down our earthly ways of thinking and living. Because in our world, the mantra is, look out for number one, take care of yourself. Don't let people hurt you. Don't let anyone get in your way. Don't waste your time on people who are difficult or you don't like or who don't respect you or don't do what you want them to do. The goal is to look out for yourself, to win, to succeed, and to do well. You know, Allison and I have absolutely loved watching the Summer Olympics together this year. It's one of our favorite things to do every four years, um, especially swimming and track. But also, as a Californian, skateboarding has been like the coolest thing to watch in <laughs> the Olympics for the first time. That was a lot of fun. And it was kind of interesting watching the Olympics. There's, you know, the commercials aren't as good as Super Bowl commercials, but there's definitely some interesting commercials thrown in there. And I saw this one commercial that kind of stuck with me that popped up that didn't really seem to match all of the rest of the like, hoorah, we won, America's the best, and we got gold, and the, the montages of everything. It showed clips not of medal winners, but of failure, of people who failed in previous Olympics. They showed clips of people running a race and getting tripped up and falling down or getting injured during their event. And then in each of these clips, they cut back and they show that someone else, usually someone who was tripped up by them or someone else who was nearby, they come, they, they pick them up. Instead of just running off by themselves, they reach down and, and help them finish the race, help them get to their feet and walk to the finish line. And I think this commercial struck me because I felt, it felt like a weird contrast to the values of our society today, to succeed, to win, to surpass others, and more just self-protection. And I think it's a helpful image of what Jesus was talking about here for what life looks like today to put other people first. See, Jesus wants us to understand that it's our responsibility to serve and to sacrifice. Our goal is not to win and it's not to be first. Rather than leveraging our homes, our relationships, our careers, our finances, and our stuff only for our own good, instead we use those things to serve other people. We use them for God's gospel purposes. And even more so, we actively give everything up for his sake, for his gospel, for his kingdom. We're willing to leave a job if God calls us to do so for his kingdom, if God calls us to do something. 
We follow Jesus even if it strains or even severs friendships or relationships with family. We choose him over those things if we're forced to make that choice. And instead of investing all that we are and all that we have in earthly sources of security, whether financial, relational, or physical, we give it to God and we hold those things openly for his kingdom purposes. And he tells us that when we do that, we will reap more bountiful rewards in his kingdom, both in this earth and in heaven. No earthly investment or reward is worth giving up our lives for. It'll all pass away and it's all gonna go away when you die someday. When all wars cease though, and all pain is gone, all sin is removed, we get to spend eternity with Christ. We'll experience that place where our hope really is, where the things that are worth it will persist. And the way that he commands us to live that life is in light of that reality, to humbly put everything else aside and to give whatever it is we need to give up for his sake and his kingdom. Which brings us to our third point this morning. Christians invest in eternity by giving up everything. So first, we saw that following Jesus requires a radical kind of surrender. This young man comes to Jesus and he's looking for another checkbox, another thing to do so that he can earn salvation on his own. And and his unwillingness ultimately to give up of himself and of what he worships is exposed. And then Jesus highlights for us that salvation ultimately is impossible without him because our earthly comforts, our earthly desires, and our earthly securities that we pursue, they hold a special place in our hearts and it's hard for us to give them up fully for him. And lastly, we saw that rather than, rather than investing in what this earth has to offer, there is a far more valuable way to invest and to spend your time and energy by looking toward eternity and putting your investments in that place instead. The passage gives a pretty simple but challenging gut check, which is, what do you need to give up to follow Jesus? Well, for the unbeliever this morning, if you're, if you're watching with us or if you're listening, there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. I hope that you hear that the, that is hope there, that it is bad news, but then there is also good news because the good news is that what is impossible on your own, God has done for you. He made a way. He came and he lived a perfect life on this earth. He died the death that you deserved. And then he was made alive three days later, providing the hope of resurrection and of redemption. Jesus isn't just a teacher like that young man thought he was. He's your savior. Religion and trying to be good enough, it doesn't work. It's not the solution. You need redemption. So I just want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, to surrender to Jesus as your savior because he loves you. He wants to save you from your brokenness. He loves you just like he loved that young man. He wants to bring you into his kingdom. And we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like if you have questions, if you'd like to do that today. Okay, for the believers in the room, I think there are kind of two key applications for us this morning. First is that rather than trying to be first in life, we put ourselves last. Because in God's kingdom, it's upside down compared to the way that our world works. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 40 through 47, Jesus tells us this. If any of you would sue and take, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and stands rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, listen here, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
See, Jesus commands his followers to be generous, gracious, and sacrificial. So what does it mean to put others last, or put ourselves last and others first? It means that we willingly give. We give even more than we're asked to those who have need. We look to meet the needs of others rather than looking at ourselves and just being concerned with what we want and with what we need. You know, I've been really burdened as I've read this and processed this these past few weeks of how bad we are at this and honestly how bad I am at this. Because our sinful instincts, again, are self-preservation. And we look at other people and we judge them, we're angry, we gossip, we make assumptions, we avoid people, and we run away from things that are uncomfortable and problematic. We often see other people as problems or threats to our lives. But Jesus challenges us and he asks that gut check question, what good is it if you love people who love you? I'll tell you, friends, you don't need faith in Jesus to be nice to your friends. You need him to show love and compassion toward those who don't love you and even to your enemies. So don't be stingy with your money or selfish with your resources. Tip well. Let's let Story Church be a place where we change the narrative that Christians, as anyone who's worked in the food industry knows, are the worst tippers and are the least generous. We need to fix that. That's ungodly. That's wrong. Be patient and lead with kindness towards others, not arrogance or cynicism. And don't measure your love by how you treat your best friends. Measure it by how you treat your enemies. Let's do that together because that's what it means to serve. That's what it means to be like Jesus and put others first. Love others like Jesus did. The second application is Jesus' command to reorder our value system in life. See, this rich young man was exposed for what he truly valued, which was his wealth and his earthly security. And just like him, our main struggle is to chase after what's safe, what's comfortable, and what brings ease in our lives. And this happens because we often view, again, just like he did, we view our faith as something extra, as an add-on. As long as we get to keep the house and the kids and the spouse and the friends and the car and the stuff and the vacations and the investments and the retirement account. We work hard for what we have. We pursue the the same things that the world tells us to pursue and says are the most valuable things in life. And we hold tightly onto those things. Just like this rich young man, we are often so guilty of chasing a life that the world would say is good and awesome and successful. And we kind of just sprinkle some Jesus into the mix. But Jesus tells us that to follow him, to be of him, we have to be willing to sacrifice all of it for him and his kingdom. So church, if you spend your days trying to gain, protect, and, uh, and acquire, and keep safe the trappings of this world and all the things that anyone who doesn't follow Jesus pursues and does, and you just want Jesus to kind of be in, be in the sidecar joining you for the ride, you really don't understand the gospel. And that is not the life that Jesus has called us to live because Jesus is not an add-on to your life. He changes and he transforms everything for your good. He wants something better than what the world can acquire and pursue through all of those different means. Following him means replacing our priorities with his priorities. It means surrendering our money, our relationships, our family, our stuff, and whatever earthly security that we have, and doing whatever he asks of us with those things, doing it with open hands, not holding tightly to what he's given to us. Because he's done the impossible for us. He's given up himself. He gave up his own life for you. So when we come to Jesus, we give up everything too. We have to be prepared to give up everything for him. Church, pray with me. Father, we thank you that you don't ask of us something that you have not already done for us. 
that you, you ask us these things, you give us this command, not because you want to make us miserable, but because you know that there is, there is joy, there is hope, there is peace, and there is a better life for us when we stop pursuing the things that everyone in this world pursues and instead we pursue you. We know that when we give generously, when we help other people, and when we lead with love like you did, that it's actually better for us that there is true life, true joy, meaning, purpose, and fullness of life when we follow you and when we live like you lived. And so Lord, help us. God, it is such a tough task to give up the things that we hold tightly, to not pursue security, to not pursue comfort, to feel not like the world around us, to, to, to get out of the rat race and make our priorities eternal ones and to pursue you and your priorities, your world and your kingdom instead of our own, Lord. And so help us, help me, help us to be people who willingly give up and surrender every area of our lives to you with whatever you ask of us. And help us to be a people who lead with love like you did. And rather than trying to win and trying to put ourselves first and trying to secure our place in the world, Lord, help us to willingly put ourselves last, to love others, to serve one another, and to honor you with all we do and all that we say, all that we think. We need you, Jesus. We can only do this with you. It's impossible to do this without you, Father. So help us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.